0: Uh, Well, good morning. morning. If you and I haven't had the chance to meet, uh, I'd love to do that, first of all. And my name is John, uh, one of the pastors here at Fifth. It's great to be worshiping with you. We're continuing a sermon series uh, in some of the parables of Jesus. It's a series titled The Stories of Jesus. The ones we've chosen for this series happen all to come from the Gospel of Luke. So we're looking at different parables from Luke's Gospel. And... um, you know, it's, if you've been around the Bible a bit, you know that Jesus told a lot of stories to help people understand God and themselves and what's going on in the world. And he, uh, he, he tended more toward telling a story than making a statement. And we've kind of rehashed this a few times in, in the sermons in this series. But it's an important thing to come back to because making a statement might kind of get the point across, but it might not invite the kind of engagement that a story does. Because when you tell a story, it gets your mind going and your imagination wondering and you find yourself trying to f- figure out where you fit in this story. Do I fit? Where do I fit? How does this apply? And you start thinking about all sorts of different areas of life where, where a propositional statement, might you might nod your head and say, okay, yeah, I agree with that. But a story is so much more. And I think that's why Jesus told stories it it engages us. So throughout this series, we've been kind of looking at the actionable truth in these stories because uh, we're not just to be hearers of the word, of course, we're to be doers of the word. And if we think back to the the parable of the wise and foolish builder, you know, that, that which made the wise builder wise was that he didn't just hear the word, he did it. He took action on it. So that's a calling for all of us who claim to follow Jesus, to take action on the word, to try to discern what the Lord is saying to us and what we're to do about it. So we're asking those questions today. What might we be hearing from God today and how might we follow God because of what we hear? So the story we're gonna read today is commonly known as the story of the prodigal son, Uh, but I think we'll find it's, it's a bit more expansive than that, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, let's listen to the scripture.
1: God's word comes to us this morning from Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours." but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Uh, Just as as we dive in and think about the story, just hearing it again, um, and and I get that all of us haven't been thinking about this story all week, so it might not have been doing this for you, but... As I heard it again, I just thought, oh my, there's so much. There's so much in this story. So we'll limit the message to an hour. Um, three, three quick cultural things just hold in mind to get what's going on here. Asking for inheritance early in that culture, well, kind of like in our culture too. If, if it's a, a confrontational asking for your inheritance early, it's the equivalent of saying, Hey, I value your money, Mom or Dad, more than I value you. I wish you would go away so I could get your money. Important piece to understanding the story. There's major rift between father and son here. Uh, the father running to meet the younger the younger son. So the the vision is uh, I don't know how you envision. I envision like a kind of a house, long driveway father on the front porch, kind of with the binoculars looking, and the instant he sees his younger son, drops him, and he runs to him, which was completely inappropriate culturally for a grown man in Palestinian culture. Grown Palestinian men didn't run. That was considered uncouth, below your status. The only reason you'd run was if your life was in danger, and that was about it. Uh, But here the father doesn't care a bit what anybody else thinks. He sprints to his son. Uh, thirdly, in that culture, the oldest son in the family was expected to be the family mediator. So if a problem arose in the family, uh, typically mom and dad wouldn't take care of it. You know, when, when they were a little bit older, of course. The, the older son would come in and say, dad, thanks, let me, I got this. L- let, me, let me take care of this for you. Uh, so, the silence at the front half of the story, when thinking of the older brother, would have spoken volumes to people of that culture. Their, their very natural, normal question would have been, well, where was the older brother? It's important to so just hold those things. Asking for inheritance early, running for a Palestinian man, and the oldest brother was supposed to be the mediator. So, let's think about the younger brother. If you're familiar with the story, it's gone through your mind. Rebellious, impetuous, disrespectful, foolhardy, just didn't get it. You know, tells his dad to drop dead because I want the money instead of you. Notice the father didn't try to talk him out of it. The father loved his youngest son enough to let him go. As painful as that must have been. He allowed his son to experience what his son said he wanted uh, knowing that it would be very costly for his son, wondering if his son would ever come back. And the son takes off thinking he's he's finally arrived. This is the path of freedom. The wallet's full. I mean, this is real life. Only to find, of course, that that's not real life. The The path he chose did not lead at all to where He was hoping, and instead, it led led somewhere way worse than he could possibly have imagined. I mean, hunger, separation, broken relationships, right? It's it's the real-life version um, of, of the proverb that says, sin is pleasurable for a season. And then it all catches up with you. And then you realize, that was not at all worth it. Not at all. So that the younger son's great need causes him to rethink things. Remember that? He's feeding the pigs. He's kind of yearning for the food and his thinking begins to change. Which, by the way, is the biblical definition of repentance, a change in thinking. So you can see the repentance happening for this young man as he's feeding the pigs thinking, hey, that looks kind of good. Whoa. Did I just think that looks kind of good? And and he starts to change. His thinking changes. My way didn't really work out. In fact, my way led me here. My way was a bad way. This was a horrible decision. I gotta change I gotta turn this around. I mean change in thinking, right? Repentance. And, says the story, he came to his senses, implying that before that time, before his change in thinking, he had been senseless. Returned to his father, genuine humility. You know the story. Asked ask for forgiveness uh, from his father and from God. Did you catch that part of the, I, I've, I've sinned against you and heaven, right? Um, which, by the way, is a very important reality for our understanding of what sin is. Uh, think to Psalm 51, if you're familiar with that. David wrote that after he had um, had adultery, you know, committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Bathsheba's husband killed. And one of the, one of the lines in that Psalm, uh, as, as David is praying his heart to God, he says, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your eyes. And if you know the context, you might be thinking, well, I don't know if it's like against God and God only that he sinned because I'm, I'm kind of thinking there's a dead guy. Uh, there was a murder. I think your sin went beyond just violating your relationship with God. It had very real impact on people in the real world. But the point he's making, of course, is to correct our thinking that our sin is just against other human beings. Because at, at its heart, sin is not a behavioral concept, it's a relational concept. That's very, very important. Because it's not just a thing we do wrong, it's the breach of relationship. So David can say, against you only have I sinned, oh God, broken relationship. So the younger son comes to his senses, he returns. It's a classic turnaround story, right? We, we make movies about this. Young kid uh, takes off. Young kid suffers. Young kid learns his lesson. Young kid goes home. Family receives the young kid back. It's redemption. It's the redemptive story. The kind of lostness represented by the younger son is obvious. Kind of a classic story, right? And the clear point, which is great news for you and me, by the way, is that God loves even those who have completely bailed on him and wandered off, and he will run to greet them when they make the slightest turn toward him. I know I need that, and I know you do too, right? Because we've all been like the younger son at some point in our life, a a glaring misjudgment, horrible decision, just needing to walk it back in all humility and say, I screwed that up. And sometimes we have to go further and say, not only did I screw that up, I kind of planned it knowingly, aware that it was wrong, and I did it anyway. I mean, that's the full honest truth, right? This is good news for you and me. God runs to those who've bailed on him. Now hang with me for a second. We're going to rewind to the very beginning of Luke chapter 15 because there are two verses that set the context for the three stories that Jesus tells in this chapter. Here are those verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it is in response to that muttering that Jesus told these three little stories. You can look at the full chapter later, but he told a story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And all three stories, of course, communicate God's heart for people because they show God's love for people who've wandered off from him and just how much God wants everyone back because they they entail, I mean, certainly the search for the lost coin and lost sheep, an all-out search no no holds barred. God is on point looking for that which is lost. And the story of the lost son is directed not just at helping those hearing understand God's heart for people, but it's directed at the two groups of people who are listening to him. You know, tax collectors and, and sinners and the Pharisees, teachers of the law. The story of the younger son is geared toward the tax collectors and sinners, in essence saying, if you've wandered off, God wants you back and will welcome you, so come back. The story of the older son is geared toward the Pharisees and teachers of the law, in essence saying, if you think you're safe in your self-righteousness, you're as lost or maybe more lost than the younger son, the one who wandered off. But God wants you back and will welcome you. So come back. And, and make no mistake, the older son was just as lost as the younger son. This is not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal sons. The, the two sons. And the tricky thing is that the lostness of the older son was much more insidious because he thought he was doing everything right. But he had not yet come to his senses, spiritually speaking. He had not yet repented, changed his thinking about God and forgiveness and grace. Or, or in real simple language, he hadn't yet come to that place where he looked at himself and realized that on his own, he was never going to get it together. That for his life to be whole, for him to be right with God, for him to have any sense of, of uh, uh, health, real full health in this life, he would need external help. He couldn't do it on his own. And see, the older, the older son makes the argument to the, the father, which which really telegraphs his thinking. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I did everything right. What's the deal? And the thinly veiled subtext of that statement is this. Since I did everything right, you owe me. Since I did everything right, Father, you're the one in my debt, I earned the fattened calf. The reward for being spotless, always doing the right thing. And friends, that really is self-righteousness. I did it right, so you owe me. From a spiritual perspective. And and notice that in his self-righteousness, the older son was so angry that he flat refused to go to the party. This this is how sad this is, right? It blinds us. We can't see that which is obvious. Which is better, to stand outside or to go into the party? Is there a choice here? But he self-selected out. You see, according to Jesus, we can do everything right and still be lost. According to Jesus, you can be very religious and still be lost. According to Jesus, you can be at church whenever the doors are open and still be lost. According to Jesus, you could be a morally upright, outstanding citizen and still be utterly lost. And, and please understand, I'm not trying to use lost as a pejorative term. It's, it's just a descriptive term. Describing us human beings when we think we don't need help from outside ourselves to make ourselves right. That's lost. And this, this little story gets right to the heart of, of the Christian faith. I mean, Jesus, in explaining why Christianity is different from ev- every other religion, uh, really helped us understand this. It's not what we do for ourselves, it's what God has done for us. In a very simple way, you could say that you spell Christianity D O. N-E, done, where you spell religion and spiritual philosophy, every other option out there, D-O, do. You have to do something. You gotta read the right stuff. You gotta climb the spiritual mountain. You gotta somehow make your way up to God. What we believe as followers of Jesus is that Christmas was an actual thing. God came down, so we don't have to climb up. It's done, not something we have to do. And there's a huge difference in that because this is all about receiving undeserved grace from God who has offered to give us the external help that we need to be made right with him and become whole people again. And the only thing that stands in the way of us receiving that help offered to us is, unsurprisingly, us. All we have to do is stop resisting and say, yes, please, Thank you. See, the brilliance of the story Jesus told is the way it shows us that everyone is lost without Jesus. Everybody. Younger brothers by pursuing sensual satisfaction, older brothers by trusting in their moral conformity. And the only real question is, where are we right now? Which way are we trending right now? Which of those categories? Summarized by Tim Keller, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. Well, there it is. Maybe you relate more to the story of the younger brother based on your background and experience. Possibly maybe even where you are right now. But for today, I want to speak to us like we're older brothers. For after all, we are in a church building or watching online perhaps. And as such, many of us have probably made the jump across the line of faith. I don't want to assume that, but many have. And we are now religious people, followers of Jesus. And because the story of the older brother was directed at religious people, let's think a little more about that. See, the story of the older son says it's possible to be part of the church and to be utterly lost spiritually. It's plain sense of the, of the text, I think, the plain sense meaning. So if it's possible to be part of the church and to be utterly lost, we better understand what exactly is going on here. What, what is Jesus getting at specifically? You see, the number one way church people avoid Jesus is by avoiding sin. Now let me unpack that because that might sound really weird. Right? We, we tend to think of sin in unbiblical ways. What I mean by that is we tend to think of sin as failing to keep God's rules of conduct. When we think of sin in that way, the idea starts to percolate in our brain that, that we might just be able to beat this thing. Because I, if I make a plan, you know, if I, if I write a list, if I add structure to my life, I might might be able to keep the rules. I, I might come really close to not doing something that's wrong. But see, when you live like that, Jesus might be your inspiration. He might be your example. He might even be your helper. But he's not your savior. Because when he's your savior, you've kind of unbuckled the tool belt of all that religious work and thrown it down and simply said... I need help because I can't do this. See, when we're trying to avoid sin to make our way back to God, we're thinking that we've got that covered on our own and that we really don't need a savior. That's self-righteousness. The Bible speaks very clearly about this in Proverbs 14. There is a way that appears right, but in the end leads only to death. This is the way that, uh, the the way that appears right is that we can fix ourselves, that we can do something to make ourselves truly presentable to God. See, self-righteousness is the spiritual equivalent of of standing to give a toast to someone and talking only about yourself. It's rather ridiculous. I, I had a guy in the church I served in Iowa tell me with a straight face I haven't sinned since 1972. And it, it, it immediately brought to mind two questions for me. First, well, what happened in 72? <laughs> <laughs> Second, are you serious? Like, I, 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 was, I, I was stunned. Uh, and this guy was a friend, and I could speak directly to him. He was a self-proclaimed Bible teacher. He tithed the hours of the day to Bible study, meaning he studied the Bible for at least 2.4 hours every day. So you're seeing a bit of the mentality, right? Evidently, he missed 1 John 1.8, which says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, the number one way church people avoid Jesus is by avoiding sin, or, or really, believing that their effort to avoid sin has made them well. It can't. It won't. It never will. Only Jesus will make you well. See, sin isn't a behavior problem According to the Bible, our, our problem isn't that we just occasionally do things that are wrong. Sin is a nature problem, according to the Bible. Thus, the real problem is that we are naturally inclined to do things that are wrong. I want you to get that and stick it in your brain to stay. It's a super important difference sin is not a behavior problem it's a nature problem so all of our efforts to stop doing bad things are worthwhile and good and we should keep them up but they will never save us they will never remake us on the inside such that we are no longer naturally inclined to be tempted by those things and that's the struggle of life right we follow jesus and we, and we live in this pressure cooker of reality where we know ourselves, we know how far short we fall and, and we know that we're trusting God and, and it's, it's a struggle. This is not an easy fix, right? But the, the trajectory is promised. As weird as it sounds, you and I were both created to be beings that live forever. And we, we can know where we're heading in Christ and, and have a solid hope in that. And see, the problem with kind of the older brother syndrome doesn't stop with just believing stuff about ourselves and, and, and how we're made right with God. They, it impacts the people around us because the older brothers of the world are great at blaming other people. They divide the world into two sets of people, the good people and the bad people. The moral conformists like themselves are the good people and the crazy immoral people like the younger son are the bad people. And of course, the world is going to hell in a handbasket because of the bad people. So if you've ever said or thought, the, the, the good people like us and are, are, are in and the bad people like them are out and they're the, the real problem, you've had a self-righteous elder brother moment, right? And it's okay, I have, we have, but that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The problem is that th- that thinking is completely opposite of the gospel. The famous uh, British author and and, uh, theologian, G.K. Chesterton, uh, responded to what I think was an, an open question posed in a London newspaper. And the question was this, what's wrong with the world? And they invited people to write in responses. Great question. What's wrong with the world? In his inimitable style, Chesterton submitted his concise response to that question. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. There it is. What's wrong with the world? That'd be me. Me. A guy named Matt Chandler pastors a big church down in Dallas, Texas called The Village and, and he shared of, of the times when people are coming to membership in their church and they, they give testimony to their experience of coming to faith and, and he wrote a whole book based on a line he heard over and over and over again in these testimony times—middle uh, twenty-somethings, late twenty-somethings, early thirty-somethings. Time and time again, got up and said, "Well, I—I I grew up in the church, but I didn't know the gospel." Well, that's a problem. So the book he wrote was called *The Explicit Gospel*. How can we make this explicit that our, our, our relationship with God coming back into that is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done on the cross. And it's not just forgiveness for stuff we've done wrong in the past. It's that we receive the perfect righteousness of, a, of Jesus and, and it's kind of poured into our spiritual bank account, so to speak, so that we can function as people Knowing that we've received the perfect righteousness of Christ and that brings this incredible freedom that the Bible talks about. This this, this freedom from trying to do it on our own, from worrying about what other people think because we know what God thinks. He loved us so much he gave that to us. The explicit gospel. We're the thing that's wrong. Everyone is wrong, everyone is loved and everyone is called to recognize that and change and the last part of the problem is this, because when we as people begin to think that we've got it on our own, that's a problem. Well, that influences the community of which we're a part, right, the, 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 the self-righteousness and we kind of misunderstand the whole thing, but then it begins to seep out to the world. Because if the church starts to really believe in their own self-righteousness, their witness to Jesus in the world just gets torpedoed. I mean, it's a mess. When, when the church lives by its own self-righteousness, we, we lose our heart for the lost. Again, meaning those fellow human beings who are thinking they've got the sin thing covered on their own or who don't yet know that help has been offered. Remember, it was the elder son's responsibility to mediate problems in the family to help bring reconciliation. Likewise, I don't think that it's a stretch to make a parallel, that it's the church's responsibility to seek the reconciliation of all those who are far from God in this world because God loves people and wants us back. But when we live in elder brother mode, we see those people who are far off as the bad people, the problem, the people who are ruining everything through their rebellion and immorality, thus when in elder brother mode, the very people the church is called to reach become the people the church most wants to avoid. Ouch. But are you feeling the spiritual insidiousness of this? Because this is a thing in the church. The self-righteous church thinks it's doing everything right, obeying God, praising Jesus, living an upright life, but it's witness to Christ to a lost and broken world is off the rails, we trust in ourselves instead of Jesus we're wandering from home just as the younger brother did and we need to return to the father and that's possible did you notice that Jesus didn't conclude this story the story of the younger son is clear he wandered off he came home he repented he was welcomed back in he's inside at the party but the story closes with the older brother still fuming outside the party, the father saying, hey, would you, would you please would you please come in? I mean, can you think of that? What does that say about the Lord? That the Lord would come outside the party to engage a person who thinks they've got it covered on their own, to say, hey, would you, would you please come? It's really great in here. I'd love to have you. Would you, would you come on in, Please? Strange position of pleading with someone to accept something of infinite value. How odd. Well, wherever you happen to be today, whether you relate more to the younger brother story or the older brother story, there's a verse from Revelation that is just wonderful. It says this The spirit and the bride say come let all who thirst take the free gift of the water of life God did what he did for people and wherever you are today you are invited back so come back come back in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit amen Pray with me. Lord, speak to us, help us. Where we've been wandering, help us to, to be honest with you, to turn, to come back to you. Uh, we pray that you would help us in all of that, Lord. Uh, please uh, repeat in our minds, rewind and replay what is from you uh, this morning in the scripture and help us to follow you. We love you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.